the CEOs of major European airlines to those at the helm of national broadsheets, mammoth retail outlets and innovative office design firms, the Chiefs has documented an array of impressive characters driving change as 2020 evolves. And in today's episode, we speak with a Chief whose products and services weave their way into the physical foundations of all of these industries. The Schindler Group was founded in Luzern in the late 19th century, and today its advanced infrastructure capabilities are led by Silvio Napoli, an engineer by training. Napoli has been with the group since 1994 and became Schindler's chairman in 2017. You'll know the Schindler name from elevators, escalators, and all sorts of moving parts that get 1.5 billion of us up and down offices and across airports every day. The company is pioneering a level of technology that streamlines our journeys and irons out those flow issues that plague public places from hotel foyers to commuter hotspots. In our conversation, we traverse through a series of key urban design issues. We weigh up the importance of cubic density, how to cater for an aging population, and whether moving sidewalks are back in vogue. I'm Tyler Brule, and this is The Chiefs on Monocle 24. I'm joined in Zurich by Silvio Napoli to hear where we're going and, more importantly, how we're getting there. I guess we should probably start with the obvious question. We are sitting in a city, we're sitting in the biggest city in Switzerland, but so much of the narrative right now that we've heard over these last three, four months is that the city is finished. There's been these proclamations that we're all going to be living in the countryside amongst cows and goats, which might be nice, but that the city has had its moment. Is there a Schindler view on this topic? There is a Schindler view, and of course, it's easy to argue the Schindler view is subjective. It is, but frankly, even based on very recent research, the real question is, is there an alternative to cities? And the answer is no. Cities offer a better standard of living, they offer higher education opportunities, they offer better healthcare, and most of all, cities offer employment and solution to unemployment. And the big problem today is people looking for jobs. So if anything, I believe cities might find a new source of arrival, and therefore this will have to be dealt with. I mean, we, we can see why we got there, and it makes for easy column inches to, to fill pages. So we can see where we, we sort of ended up because of density and, and all of these these topics. And of course, you know, many of these, of course, were coming down the track before there was a pandemic and, and everything that was there. How engaged are you in the topic of, of density? Because of course, developers love it. A lot of city planners like it. Of course, you have people on other sides of the political spectrum who don't. But when you sort of chart out where the business is now, uh, your relationship with architects and, and other engineers. What are, the, what are the solutions that you want to bring? And let's, let's take a topic like density, for example. Density is the key topic. And if one thinks about it, density is a formula. Sorry, I'm an engineer, I can't help. Is the number of people per square meter. Now, this can be measured horizontally, but also vertically. And actually, one could measure it in 3D, so number of people per cubic meter. And so that is the key issue. How do you organize a city knowing that cities have to grow vertically? There is not enough space. Space is very expensive. So actually verticality is the great solution. So how do we engage? We engage in architects, drawings, and we engage in city planning by making them realize the importance of this famous third dimension. People traditionally think about the last mile, people think about going to one place to another in a very traditional, flat consideration. If one adds the overall space, it's amazing how many people don't realize that. For example, 
people will invest billions, actually trillions, to develop a train that shortens the trip from city A to city B by two minutes. Fast trains. Great, you do that. Then you get out of your train and you have to wait in line 12 minutes to get onto the escalator. This happens also here in Zurich. That is the consideration that we help people having. And it's amazing how there are algorithms, there are very simple calculations that help people. And I've seen really experienced architects literally having a moment of truth by saying, you're right, we didn't think about that. And why is that? Because you know, if you think about big infrastructure, oftentimes, not always, but of course, big infrastructure, the high-speed trains, etc., there is a state player involved somewhere. And of course, these are sometimes election-winning grand projets that, uh, that come out in the world. Why do we then suddenly see this compression at the last 500 meters, the last 100 meters? Is that because we're suddenly in the hands of the developer? Uh, we're suddenly in the realm of trying to, of course, again, maximize our Swiss francs, our dollars, our euros uh, per square cubic meter. Why is there this bottleneck there in so many places? Not everywhere, but I would say a lot of towers you go into in the world, there is a problem at, at the lobby or there's a problem at the 51st floor. Teller, I think it's as often a mixture of many considerations. Financial is truly one, because in fact, a space taken by an elevator shaft or by an escalator is space that cannot be rented, is space that cannot be sold. Now, this is being looked into and technology enables that. I'll have to come to that in a second. But it's also the simple consideration in any engineering process, whenever you have a flow, you're bound to the bottleneck, which is the place where you have the most constrained space for anything to go through. And until cities were not so populated, this was never an issue. It's only now, and this is happening faster than ever, and now to add complexity to the matter, now comes the whole topic of health. So suddenly people realize, yes, maybe we don't make much money by not being able to rent that space, but we may well think about it in a proper way. And more and more people will consider it a differentiation. We see now people worrying about how many people can be in an elevator, which adds constraints. We see people about worrying about pushing buttons in an elevator. And all that, I'm an optimist, will be resolved and can be resolved by technology going forward. When we look at the state of our journey, where do you see things moving at the moment? Because, you know, if you're in many towers in Asia, you wouldn't see it in Switzerland. I, I've not seen it anywhere in Europe, but you've got, okay, double stacked, uh, of course, cabins. You have sometimes, which is interesting, sometimes it's it's frustrating uh, because there's you're like, why are we stopped? And there's like a lot of people getting on and off above you, et cetera. But have there been, let's say, points, have there been maybe some breakthroughs that you've sort of, of course, brought to market in the last 36 months that the consumer is not experiencing yet. I'm wondering, is there sort of a point of tension right now that we're at that actually some of these bottlenecks are going to start to lift? The point of tension is called connectivity. Let's think for a moment. Before you go to the airport, you usually know which plane you're going to take and you plan your trip according to this. With an elevator today, traditionally, this was not the case. You arrived and then you queue up. And the journey can be awful if you think about this. As a matter of fact, traveling is usually a sequence of waiting. But now today, if one can connect your elevator journey, if one can call it this, to your escalator journey, to your train journey, and actually from the moment you leave home, there are systems whereby connecting with your mobile phone to your office, the elevator could be made to be waiting for you. Or if not even individualized, which is possible with a VIP service, the elevator can start planning for traffic of people coming in. 
And so then you can have shorter trips with more people, or you can modulate the way lifts are organized typically in a big tower in a way to plan for the traffic coming. And this is, again, to do with connectivity and data. Data-driven traffic, which we use traditionally in airports, airplanes, trains, is coming into the building. And that's something on which Schindler has been pioneering. And this, of course, as you can imagine, cannot be done unilaterally, but it is through the type of interaction you mentioned before with architects, architects, planners, and people that plan cities. I'm curious how often it happens, and you don't have to reveal any state secrets, but how often is there a discussion six months, nine months after a building opens and someone comes to you and says, you know, we, we really should have gone with two more lift shafts? Because oftentimes we can all be in lift lobbies and we see there's like extra capacity. You can see that there's those two extra doors that are there for that point down the road. And then, yeah, someone was doing the value engineering. Oh, we can save money on those two lifts. It's evolving. I would say when big towers started being developed, and I happened to be in Asia at the time, beginning of the century, that was almost systemic because people kind of guessed. And there was always a push between the vertical transportation suppliers and the architects saying, we need more. And they said, no, no, we need less. And guess what? We actually didn't need more. But now with experience, no architect wants to the name on a building where people have to queue up in the morning and most of all lunch, which is something people tend to overlook to go and grab their coffee or the sandwich. So now I think there starts to be much more of an established practice whereby this problem will become less and less the case. Let's try to spend some time in the office. We're having this discussion in an office, albeit at ground level in Zurich. In the same way that we've, of course, heard about the death of the city, we've, of course, uh, you know, we've been speaking to a lot of, of chiefs, of course, across this uh, series who've had you know, different views about the way we will be working in the future, how much of it will be from home across digital lines, again, versus going into a physical workplace. What is the discussion? Um, is there a view as when you talk to clients over the next, you know, they're doing big developments across the next 48, 60 months? Is there a sense of panic in the industry or everyone is going to be, listen, let's calm down. We know how technology is going to work, but people are still going to be coming into buildings you know, and towers to, to have discussions, meetings, engage. What's the feeling in the market right now? We're at the half year point of 2020. The latest view is the following. Yes, short term, not everyone will come back to the office. At the same time, in pure data terms, whatever is going to be lost by, of people coming less to the office will be gained, so to say, by people wanting more space. For example, there are very highly paid service industries, I met a few of them, who realized that the office density they had in some European countries, for example, Spain, is no longer sustainable. So they will actually need more space, even if they will have many people on the road serving clients uh, around. So. At the moment, that equation will take care of probably avoiding any major revolution in the next year or two. Going forward, things may change. However, there, the way offices are being looked at, I think, is not only negative. People realize the value of an office. People realize that the office is a great equalizer. Not everyone likes to hold a conference call with the, in the bedroom <laughs> behind them. And also, what is also a new finding is the following. As economies reopen, some people go to the office, others don't. And this whole hybrid system is very difficult to manage. And typically, people would hold a meeting in the office, and whoever is not there, well, is going to be by 
force majeure taken out of the discussion. And this dynamic is very difficult to manage. So there's all things at place. Clearly, we don't know how this is going to end. It's too early. But I think the death of the office is not for tomorrow. Tell me, when we look at key markets for you, uh, if we spin the globe a little bit, what corner of the world do you think there's been a combination of architects working with, of course, great clients who have really got a grip on what the office tower of, of the future needs to be? What does it look like? Is it Asia versus Europe versus America? Or do you really say that actually you know, the Koreans and, and the Japanese are leading the way or there's we see a vision in Singapore? which probably should be replicated also in Paris and in San Francisco moving forward. As always, one size does not fit all. Some cultures are comfortable with high rises, others do not even allow it for urban planning reasons. But the other way to look at this is that, you know, there is the learn by practice. The U.S. used to be miles ahead of anyone. Today, the most advanced architecture in terms of commercial buildings, high rise and progressively even residential is in Asia. That is undisputable. Where Asia still has to catch up with places like Japan and some parts of the US, but definitely Europe is leading the way, is the aspect of sustainability. And sustainability is key going forward. Buildings account for 38% of our carbon dioxide emissions uh, worldwide. Even urban environment buildings account for 50% of energy consumption, much more than transportation. So we spend a lot of time discussing about cars, but no one talks about buildings. So those considerations have to come all together. And I think it's a very exciting time because I think there is no way other than to improve. When you point to Asia, it's the one thing that I often notice, our colleagues notice, that yeah, if you're in if you're in Hong Kong, you're in Singapore, particularly if you're in if you're in Tokyo, though, I would say that there is this real understanding of also not just putting all of the restaurants, you know, uh, at basement level three, uh, that you now see, of course, that there is, you know, a lot of F&B, which is maybe halfway through the tower, that you've got things at the 25th and 26th floor. There are things happening on the roof. So there's already just, in terms of just the manpower going into the building every day, there's a distribution of, of the flow. Are you surprised, though, as you said, that you know, one size doesn't fit all, but still in this globalized world, that there's maybe not as much benchmarking uh, as you'd like, because you look at a lot of new towers in the States. You know, same height as something you might find in Yokohama, but everything's still clustered at the bottom and oftentimes not particularly interesting as well. The benchmarking is happening through architects. However, let's face it, and I'd be careful because these are my customers, people that build, build towers like to have tailor-made things. They don't like to be told, that's the standard, A, take that. And so there is a certain taste that evolves with time. But this leads to another element, which is flexibility in buildings. You mentioned New York. The way they were designed beautifully beginning of the 20th century is still the way they've been used today. More and more, the challenge will be how will buildings and towers evolve in terms of the usage? And that, with traditional architecture, is very difficult. And by the way, elevators are a key problem. What you mentioned before about creating restaurants, perhaps halfway through Hanai Rise, that's something that many people are starting experimenting with, even in Asia, in existing buildings. But that's very difficult when you have a vertical transportation that suddenly I can mention a very famous building in Hong Kong where a bank had the idea to establish their company restaurant, they don't call it a canteen, halfway through the building. And this created major chaos because suddenly the lift were not coming. Everything was being blocked. So we're also learning to work with architects by creating 
flexible control systems that instead of being managed centrally in the building can be done through the cloud and therefore allow for a modularity and adjustment depending on the buildings uh, is going to be used. And that, I think, is a key way forward. For the mayors and the property developers and the landowners and the architects who are listening, so do you think we're moving into also a, a moment or an era of big mixed-use retrofitting. I'm sitting on, you know, maybe a building in Houston, which is downtown, which is 40 stories, but in the spirit of densification, et cetera, are 10 of those floors going to become hotel? Are another 10 going to become residential? And then the rest will be refitted as office space for the future. Is this a bit of a moment that we're either in or moving into? I am convinced that's the case. And we see more and more requests precisely on how to adjust the traffic patterns in a building as a function of that. A very great experience in this was this co-working situation where many existing office buildings over the last five years were refurbished to allow for this co-working. Now, co-working is a whole different way to manage people going from one floor to the other. There are people that come to buildings never been before. There are people that want to readjust. And that has created major issues in how traffic was managed in terms of escalators, elevators. And that's an example. So people are learning this flexibility, this adaptation. And I can see this happening more and more going forward. You, you are sitting you know, in a place you know, we're focused on, as we said, you know, trying to you know, get from the lobby up to the 49th floor. But then there's also this world of people asking the question, are we only going to be on team chats? Are we only going to be in video conferences moving forward? Are people going to get back out of the road? Huge part of your business uh, as well as also people being in major transport hubs. And I was even asking the question, you know, is the moving sidewalk still fashionable? But your, your comms team advised me, yes, very much so. Um, <laughs> people want them. I thought maybe the interest of, of getting people to walk, maybe uh, they're, they're not uh, as uh, in vogue as they used to be. But tell me, how does that play when we look at a world of, are we going to be flying to Japan five or six times a year? Are we going to be going to New York, you know, once a month for a meeting? What do you see happening at these major transport nodes around the world? Those nodes are absolutely key, and they're also rethinking the way they operate. So let's stay on what you mentioned, the, the moving walk. That's a key element, which actually was getting out of fashion. And now people realize that actually moving walks are quite an effective way, not only to transport people, but to channel them. So when I happened to have the privilege of being in Hong Kong, I remember meeting the head of the local subway company. But he said, Silvio, whatever innovation you do, fine, but I need a simple way. How can I transport more people? And he explained to me then, you know, in Hong Kong, people actually don't like to walk and it's very hot most time of the year. So unless I have ways to channel this traffic with a maximum of 100 meters in between stops, they're going to take the bus. So... You can see how cities more and more, I think, will need this type of channeling, which can be scary from a European point of view. But when you have big masses of people, this actually works. And so once more, the key word is connectivity. How you connect that with the next? Because if you have a big moving walk, which at the end doesn't have a way to let people out, you create major issues, potentially even safety ones. And so once more, we are getting out of this silos approach to transportation, but also to data. And this is a big treasure of potential going forward. And to give an idea, Shinra transports with their equipment around the world, 1 billion people per day. 1 billion is huge. Zurich Airport is 80,000 on the previous <laughs> normal. Not today. Uh, not today. <laughs> Beijing Metro is 800,000 per day. So 1 billion is really colossal. So, But until now, somehow all this 
potential was lost because all the data was trapped in every escalator, in every elevator, and was not connected. Today, with cloud connection, you can actually get this connectivity and use this data to plan for traffic, to plan for better service, to plan for refurbishing, for maintenance. And going back to the urban discussion, if we can have this data then connected to all the data in buildings, in roads, in airports, that's going to be the future. Are you enabling also for a lot of these pain points, this waiting, this queuing to actually happen on the move? I mean, you know, again, moving sidewalk, I'm always thinking, you know, why isn't one of the, the major x-ray companies working with Schindler to say, I just stand on this and I'm, I don't care if I'm processed like, you know, uh, you know, a chicken doesn't matter. At least I have the sense of movement. I'm not sort of standing still. My bag's moving with me and I get off at the other end and I'm, I'm nearly at my gate. But are we moving to a place like that, particularly where you know, airports we know are going to be difficult, certainly for the next stretch. You know, they had a bad decade, they got a bit better, and now they become another pressure point. The specific example of the moving walk, not yet, by the way, great idea. Thank you. Not at all. <laughs> of course, there is always a fine line between what people feel comfortable with. They don't want to see themselves in a minority report type of world where everything is being tracked and checked. In terms of moving walks, not yet, but in terms of elevators to make the whole experience, you know, effective, more useful, absolutely. Today you have you can have screens in elevators, once more, thanks to connectivity, that can provide live feed of news, that can also provide tailor-made information, depending on the passenger, connected to the mobile phone. At the same time, I want us to be realistic that even in a high tower, the longest journey for a lift trip is one minute. So, you know, the famous topic about the elevator pitch, to, to it's one minute, it's not three minutes. And so whatever message you want to give has to be very pitched, very clear and snappy. Escalators can be a bit different. And that too, this is evolving as advertising space. And they're going back to the state of the art. Clearly, Asia there is leading the way. Are escalators going out of fashion? Because I think of you know, your experience as a child with an escalator, oftentimes, at least in North America, was going to the mall, was going to the department store. So we see the death of the department store. I mean, hopefully not, but certainly in some corners of the world. Malls are challenged in North America, not, not in Asia so much. But are you ramping down escalator production? Absolutely not. To the contrary. But one through the, the segment is evolving. Indeed, malls, there are less of them, but airports, infrastructure, more than ever. And public transportation will grow, that's for sure, and their escalators, as I mentioned, and moving walks, by the way, will be more and more key to facilitating the experience. One question, though. When I'm in, again, let's go back to Japan, also Korea as well, what is it about the Asian developers, maybe the architects they're working with, that you often get into a lift in Asia and it is double height? I'm not saying it's a double cabin, but you're in an elevator where you have real volume, North America and Europe, you get into something which is frequently, and no offense to, to your product lineup, but it's a shower cubicle, which is good for 20 people. Uh, <laughs> why? That's, that's my question, because I always come back from Tokyo, and I'm going, it's amazing, it doesn't matter whether you're a hotel, you're going in a department store, you've just got this sense of volume, and it, it's a different experience. I mean, it's the same thing as saying, okay, I'm flying first class, uh, or I'm, I'm stuck in uh, you know, an unpleasant low-cost carrier. Absolutely, and I be lying if I didn't say that I do enjoy the Asian big space experience as much as I do. It is a whole different world. And when you then suddenly travel to Asia or live there like I did, you realize coming back to Europe, you do that it's all different. I think it's it's really about experience. In Europe, there are not that many high rises. So people take the lift when they leave their home in the morning or come back in the evening. 
they experience, many of them, even going to the office, sometimes they don't even take the lift. So this whole idea of being very often with big crowds of people in lift, I think, led Asia to having these big spaces, almost as a compensation. And that then stayed, and that then became initially a status symbol, but now it's become a requirement. And I think in Europe, because of our less populated cities, we never got there. But you can see some of the high-rises, even in Europe, in, in Germany, for example, or here in, um, uh, in Switzerland, there are not that many, but there are a few, or London, start now adopting that same approach, at least in commercial buildings. For residential ones, we're not there yet. Speaking of residential and, and looking to the future, on one side, of course, you have political lobbies and you have, uh, again, landowners and developers uh, who are trying to sell concepts for an aging society. Of course, we're in the middle of a period, we're coming out of a period where we talk about people who are over 60, 65, 70, who are, who are at risk. And yet, you, know, you have a lot of people still say, well, you should take the stairs and, it's, and jump on a bicycle, etc. But you know, something does happen. Maybe when you get north of 85 or 90, these things simply aren't possible. Your knees go, your eyesight goes, but you probably shouldn't be on, I don't care whether the bike is an e-bike or you're under your own steam, you shouldn't be on a bike maybe. But yet we're, we're kind of being pushed into this world like everyone is, is still 25. What role and what view does Schindler have, though, when you think about aging society, when you think about not just residential, but of course also people having to get to offices, having to get through major transport hubs? Is there a consideration or program? Because oftentimes you know, we like to think about all kinds of special interest groups. We like to focus on lots of different minority issues that are out there. And everyone talks about an aging society, but there's often not a lot really done on the ground. Absolutely. Aging society is one of the facts that is pushing cities to be designed the way they are. And one of the facts that is actually supporting the growth of elevators and escalators, even in residential houses for a moment, people realize that having an elevator is not a luxury, it's a requirement. And so, for example, you see even in places like China, people start more and more, and the, there is urban allowance and support to create shafts outside the buildings to allow for elevators to be installed in buildings where previously it was forbidden. In China, up until 2003, any building below seven floor could not have a lift because of energy and, and cost savings, etc. Today, of course, that has to change. And so we are actively supporting all these programs, which you start seeing also here predominantly in, in Northern Europe as well. So how to create a product that is fit for low-rise residential with a easy interface for aging people, not only wheelchairs, but simply ways in which they can interact with a the lift, they can understand how maintenance is done, is something we are actively working on, actually advertising as well. That too, though, will only become effective, no excuse, we are working on it, once architecture will incorporate that into the way forward. So if you just before we go, tell me what is going to change my life when I'm traveling vertically or I'm, I'm traveling between terminals what do we see on the horizon right now that is, you know, is going to be changed? And don't say it's just connectivity and big data. I'm not going to let you say that. I want to know yeah. something that you're building, which is going to be you know, extraordinary. What's going to be extraordinary is that the experience will be personalized. You will not be pushing a button. You will leave your home on your mobile phone when you push on your Google Map icon. You will say, when you got out of your apartment, you're going to know which lift will be waiting for you, which then will be connected to the bus or the Uber waiting for you, which then will take you into a direction saying, take 
the next corner because the escalator taking you to the subway is going to be less crowded and this personalized trip including you coming to the office in the morning saying welcome mr brule your lift a is waiting for you into the office that's going to be absolutely possible i'm still letting off the hook that's a data discussion the fact am i going to get on that escalator though is there something where there's not gonna be grubby finger marks uh, on it where i know that the the rubber moving banister whatever you call it is cleaned as opposed to seeing a day's worth of smudges on it already okay, that's good. what happened okay, we good. have a system which cleans the handrails by the way we just launched it as they go continuously we have a system that cleans air in every car every time people step out it is uv based which more coming with nanotechnology and you're going to have a system whereby you don't even need to push the button in a lift because it's going to be contactless just by approaching your hand and simulating you're going to have a system whereby even from outside the elevator you're going to be seeing advertisements while you go and this could be an advertisement or it could be people in your building signaling what's going to happen with cleaning tomorrow or the next party happening on the terrace during the summer I love it. See, that's what I was looking for. My thanks to Silvio Napoli for joining us for this week's episode of The Chiefs. And don't forget, The Chiefs Conference is coming up on September 17th at the storied Souvretta House in St. Moritz, Switzerland. Many of the guests we've had on the series, along with some fresh faces, will be putting their heads together to discuss and debate the challenges and opportunities of the next decade. Head to monocle.com to find out more. The Chiefs was produced by Paige Reynolds and edited by Louis Allen. I'm Tyler Brulé. Thank you very much for listening. 